0: Welcome to the Queer Arabs. This is Alia. And Ellie. And we are the Queer Arabs. So uh, my name is Alia. I am a half Saudi lesbian.
1: And I'm Ellie. I am a Lebanese bisexual transgender person. So,
0: And it's not just the two of us. We have someone awesome here with us. Um, well, from another part of the country, but she's basically here with us. Shiam is the guest that we have on today. Shiam, can you introduce yourself? Tell us what you do.
2: Hi, guys. I'm a Syrian-American activist currently based in Brooklyn. Um, I uh, work on a campaign called Books Not Bombs. Uh, We work to create scholarships for displaced Syrian students uh, in the higher ed space. Um, And we also talk about the attacks happening um, uh, in Syria, specifically uh, at schools, um, and I can, I'm like very happy to talk more about that later.
0: Awesome. I'm super excited to have you on. Um, well, let's do a brief, random get to know you thing. Can you tell us three nouns?
2: Biologist, cyclist, uh-huh. photographer. Okay. All well, right. I'm trying to do all those things again. I have a biology degree, I rode my bike to Alaska. Uh, and I used to photograph for my school newspaper.
0: <gasps> awesome. Okay. Well, we're going to ask you some three questions based on those nouns. So, what made you want to be a biologist?
2: Uh, when I was 15, I started uh, hiking at the edge of the suburb that I lived in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the part where it became not a suburb anymore and it was just land. Um, and I started taking pictures of the plants mm-hmm. as they would bloom and I would post them online and ask people to help me identify them oh. uh, I would do, yeah I would do this oh. on Flickr um
3: That's and, so fun. and
2: as then. I like learned the names of plants then I would uh read more about I just got like really into it and so I majored in evolutionary yeah. biology
0: awesome and tell us about the moment if if there was like one moment where you were just like I want to make I want to take a long distance cycling trip like what Sorry. inspired you to do to do that
2: That's a good question. Um, I think I I was a sophomore at the University of Texas at Austin. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Um, I was studying biology, super into science, um, and as a result, uh, really into health. So like understanding uh, how the cell functions and different ways that like a cell could, um, you know, like not function right or something could go wrong um and this cycling trip uh was with a group called texas 4000 for cancer and so it was like a cancer fundraiser plus uh like awareness trip Mm -hmm. um and uh there was also like another personal component was it was just like a challenge
3: um
2: it's like there's like a physical challenge like plus like i really believe in um you know, like talking about health and like promoting health.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And then photographer. Ellie, do you want to ask a question based on that now? It's your turn.
1: Way to put me on the spot. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, so what kind of photography do you do? I mean, aside from biology and by, you know, identifying things in
2: the field? Mm-hmm. So I did, I started off with plants and then I moved on to people. Um, How did I do that? Oh, it was when I moved to, uh, when, so when I, uh, I first went to UT San Antonio for a year. um, And on the weekends I would just ride the bus wherever and just take Mm -hmm. pictures of the city. Um, And so pictures of people like on the bus or just like at the Alamo or like people would be like in the pictures. Yeah. Um, and I got really into it. I tried out for the Daily Texan when I went to UT Austin, um, mm-hmm. and was so scared. And and in hindsight, I realized that was like anxiety. Like um,
3: yeah.
2: I should have like gotten my anxiety treated in college, but uh, I just had like an enormous amount of anxiety around tryouts, and I mm-hmm. um, and. Yeah, then I remember getting a phone call at, like, 3 a.m. that I had made the team and that my picture would be on the front page (gasps) of the newspaper.
3: Cool. Um,
2: It was, I'll never forget the picture. Um, uh, There's, uh, like, an area called Barton Springs in Austin.
0: Oh, I think I've been there. And I was
2: sent to photograph the cleanup of the spring. And so there were these two shirtless uh, men um, like, just spray washing the rock and the mist, and, like, the light was, like, going through the mist, and their the mist was, like, all over their shirtless bodies.
0: Oh, my God. I'm gonna need to see this if,
2: I if it's accessible. They they cleared out their archives. So, like, no. the digital archives from the time, like, no longer exists.
0: Oh, my God. You didn't, you yeah. didn't have a copy for yourself.
2: There might be one somewhere, um, but... Okay. Yeah, and a lot of my friends that I have today are from the Daily Texan.
0: Uh-huh. Oh, that's, that's so cool. cool. That's a cool way to to know people. Like, um, yeah. So,
1: give us words.
0: Well, <laughs> more specifically, uh, so you you gave us a little overview about uh, Books Not Bombs. Um, can you kind of describe like a little more about its mission and how you got started with it?
2: Definitely. Um, so, the mission of Books Not Bombs is to create scholarships for displaced Syrian students, mm-hmm. um, and to raise awareness um, and do advocacy when we can on the attacks on Syrian schools. Um, mm-hmm. The campaign was started by um, people that I knew in the Syrian activist community, mm-hmm. uh, Nada Hashem and Kinan Rahmani, um, and it was started as a campaign under Students Organized for Syria, which they had also started. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. Uh, the you know the international community when they talk about uh, the the lost generation of Syrian students, um, they had this like big conference called the Education Cannot Wait conference, and a lot of big promises made by countries. Um, and the Syrian conversation on on the education crisis is that you have to stop the bombs. Um, yeah. But but other like big donors they aren't nec- they they're more concerned with. Um, maybe putting a band-aid on the issue um, right. but really like the the attacks on schools are happening because civilians are being attacked in general and the bombs affect every aspect of a student's life um, yeah. From the, also the sieges so the bombs and the sieges affect uh, a student's life from the food in their fridge mm-hmm. to the electricity they need to study to if they have to grieve like 10 family members who have died in a strike
3: right.
2: uh, if their school gets attacked um, so that's how we, that's how, like, that's our angle into it. Um, and we fundamentally see that, like, um, the education crisis is linked to the broader, like, bombing crisis.
0: Right.
1: It's almost like a war was seriously disruptive to their education and their lives.
2: Yeah. You know Exactly. Like, I know it's so obvious. I think the,
3: yeah.
2: the thing that's, like, kind of frustrating, um, you know, the way that, Arabs talk about conflict if they're directly affected by it,
3: uh-huh.
2: versus the way that non-Arabs in the humanitarian space talk about conflict is totally different. And yeah, you find yourself okay. saying, you find yourself just spending a lot of time saying really obvious things.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like from from the like from the outsider's perspective, you mean like saying the obvious right. things. Right. So, yeah.
2: so yeah. like. Ellie, uh, when I was talking about, like, um, like books, not bombs, like how we talk about the education crisis in Syria, you almost, like, sheepishly or coyishly were like, oh, it's almost as if the bombs are linked to their ability to study. Um, Oh, right. Right. Well, because it is, it's an obvious thing, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but we are actually like the minority voice in this space and we do have to, we do have to spend our time talking about it this way because everyone else just wants to put a bandaid on the problem. Right. That, or
1: you have the opposite of it where they don't want to do anything. It's like, well, what if the money goes to the wrong group? You know, yeah. or how, how right. can you be sure? It's like, well, it's a war. It's uncertain.
2: Mm-hmm. It is literally uncertainty and violence. Yeah. So, um, Yesterday, actually, I was in D.C. um, talking with someone named Abdelaziz Al-Hamza, who is the English spokesperson of a Syrian civil society group called um, Raqqa is being slaughtered silently. And one thing we talked about was uh, how in the space, like when when you see a headline that says, like, international community uh, commits $7 million or $700 million or something, uh, to Syria. A lot of that goes to their own people. It goes to like non-Syrian groups who are given money to train Syrian civil society in something. Um, and Aziz was like sharing with us what one training session might look like. And they, he was like, they spent 30 minutes um just telling you about how they made the training materials mm-hmm. like alex designed this app and this app was designed by alex and he used this coding language and alex is so great and like whatever and yeah,
0: that's so like self congratulating for
2: the first right portion Ooh, it's like vanity charity
1: my favorite
2: and you're right like it's really frustrating that like 15 years after george bush declared global war on terror Mm -hmm. Uh, and then Obama said that the global war on terror was over even though he continued it through drone warfare and the Operation Inherent Resolve against ISIS Um, we still uh, the state still won't differentiate between a humanitarian and a terrorist Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Um, even though there's all this talk against Islamophobia especially under Barack Obama um, in the state's eyes like it can't tell right and so Mm -hmm. one way is that like syrian humanitarian groups um had their bank accounts frozen by the treasury department
3: oh wow
2: like syrian american groups right who do humanitarian work uh
3: yeah yeah.
2: or you can't venmo someone 15 dollars for a syria fundraiser and put syria Mm -hmm. in the oh things like that
0: okay that's that's actually helpful for people to know I think, um, even just like that Venmo thing, you know? That's, it's ridiculous. Ugh, God, that's it's absurd. that's you know, infuriating.
2: Um, you know what I think is really cool to be here on the Queer Arabs podcast, because I think
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, there needs to be more, I mean, the, the social justice and human rights space
3: mm-hmm.
2: needs to include Uh, queer Arab issues more and queer Muslim issues more, uh, just queer issues related to the MENA region more. Um, And so I'm like, really excited to be on here.
0: Me too. I, I love it. Yeah, I think we do need to bridge that, what you know, the gap that there is, bridge that gap. And it's awesome to be talking about other, you know, like other social justice issues that uh, in many ways do tie into the queer issue, like queer issues. Absolutely. Um, no,
2: I, I think what's frustrating is that like uh, a lot of times in the space, uh, because in Arab culture, your private life, your intimate life is kept very private. A lot of times uh, it like, it's kind of, it's it, it's really to the detriment of people who, who's, uh, it doesn't allow, I don't know, I'm not saying this correctly, but like basically the space on human rights and social justice in the MENA area is dominated by straight and cisgender people. Um, And uh, most people like do not wanna talk about this issue. They're under, even if they feel like in their heart, they're not a person who discriminates.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: um, Most people don't make the effort to learn more. And uh, there's many reasons why it's important to learn more about uh, queer Arab human rights issues and LGBT human rights issues, but one of them is because uh the united states uses that
1: and lo- one of the problems i often see with uh like basically any sort of activist anything is the first people into it usually control it for the for the duration of it so if you have a whole bunch of uh okay and i'm not talking these groups specifically i'm just using them for example if you have a city where um, activism springs up, say, in the gay community, but it's headed up by uh, white, straight feminists, they will continue to dominate the space because they will, they're by virtue of being first and by virtue of staying the longest because they'll only be the ones everyone thinks about. So it gets really hard for people who are not, you know, first in the space to really start to make space in it. Unless either the space is seated or they just do so much better than the first people there. Yeah. It's it's maddening.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, And I think that that's why intersectionality is so important. Um, And I hope that everyone who considers themselves an activist really commits to this idea. And for me, it's something I reflect on every day because it's not something that you say you are. One day, and then don't think about it again. It's something you have to constantly think about.
1: But that it's especially hard when we're dealing with a civil war situation or any sort of conflict situation, because the established aid groups, you know, uh, Red Cross, Red Crescent, are often dominated by people uh, who are sending aid, are people from the outside. You have to, you have to integrate people for, who are. Inside the conflict, you have to integrate people who are from the region. You can't just say, "Well, they don't have experience or they don't have uh, you know the credentials to do this," because otherwise, you know, how are they ever going to get it, even though they have the inside the like inside track on these things.
2: So I hear what you're saying, but it's actually not the case in Syria. Oh. Um, and I'll explain. It's actually a very messed up case. Um, First, it's like, I think one of the problems you mentioned, civil war, um, is that the media hasn't really known what to call Syria. And so you've seen like crisis, civil war, etc. But even if all the Syrians stop fighting each other in Syria, there's still 84 nationalities represented who are fighting in the country. Um, And so many people feel like this is an international war that's being uh, played out on Syrian soil. And part of the reason why people don't want, uh, or like why the conflict has continued for so long, uh, is because, um, the states involved don't want the conflict to spill into other borders. They want like the fighting to be contained within Syrian borders, um, until there's a winner. Um, with regards to aid, another part of the reason why the Syrian regime has, um, stayed in control for so long is that it's relied on the argument that it's a sovereign state to, uh, like, prevent uh, any type of accountability from happening. Um, So what that means when they say they're a sovereign state is that they won't allow um, international uh, aid organizations across the border unless, like, they go through the regime. Um, And so that means that aid has become politicized and weaponized in the country. And so the UN has actually given the Assad regime uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in aid, uh, because if they want to give aid, they have to go by the international law, which is that this is a sovereign state and we have to give it uh, to the Assad regime. So the the people who are actually at the front lines of the most vulnerable areas, which are being attacked by the regime, um, are local Syrian actors. Um, They're the ones who, like, for example, um, in 2014, there was a big scare because uh, cases of polio started uh, to be reported in Syria. um, And previously, polio had been eradicated. Um, And this was scary, not only because it's polio, but honestly, the real reason why officials were scared is because Syrians were being displaced and they were heading to Europe. And so the real fear was that polio would spread into Europe. Um, and at that time, um, uh, a lot of communities were besieged across the state. Um, an estimated one million people were living under siege. And uh, it was actually the Syrian team uh, that organized a vaccination campaign and stopped the spread of polio. and wow. uh, because only Syrian citizens can uh, can like work within the state., right. uh, they can't you know they can't be stopped by that like at the border. Also, uh, the UN stopped counting the death toll in Syria in 2014, so all the the documentation has been through Syrian groups. And like, what happens is, um, what's really frustrating is that, uh, and this happened with Eastern Ghouta recently.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Eastern Ghouta is an area outside of Damascus that just got displaced, forcibly displaced um, by the Assad regime. Um, but it's local Syrian groups again who are like doing the aid work, but. Uh, But when Eastern Ghouta was in the news, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: suddenly you had these big organizations who have no presence there uh, put out like donation calls um, Mm -hmm. saying like one big NGO was like, Eastern Ghouta is in peril, donate to us now so we can continue helping Syrians. But they actually had no presence there. Um, And that was very frustrating and very upsetting.
0: I would be interested to hear your input on organizations that you feel are good to, um, you know, for people to mm-hmm. look to or to donate to. Uh,
1: one question I had is, forcibly displaced sounds like a very sanitized version of they sent soldiers and and bombed the area and people left. That was, is that accurate? Or am I like misusing a term of art here?
2: It's so well in in the Eastern Gulta case, Eastern Gulta has been besieged since twenty twelve. Mm-hmm. So the Syrian regime didn't send soldiers in. Um, actually it's uh, so the area Eastern Gulta has three hundred fifty thousand people in it. It includes a bunch of small towns. Less than one percent of that population are armed militiamen. And I think there was two or three different militias in the area, mm-hmm. one of whom was I am um, classified as a terrorist organization by the international community. The other two were not. Um, and so that was the reason why the Syrian regime justified uh, besieging the area and then it bombed it indiscriminately with the help of Russia. There was a tunnel that was dug um, that led out into an area controlled by uh, a Syrian opposition group, um, which was not designated as a terror organization but that area was retaken by the regime and that tunnel was closed last year in february and so that's when the siege really like the effects of the siege began to escalate and people were really struggling and then the bombing campaigns began to intensify, uh, intensify um some of the bombs were improvised explosive devices They're colloquially called barrel bombs, so just barrels filled with TNT and shrapnel.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Other bombs were chlorine bombs. um, And the reason why they use chlorine bombs, even though there's uh, a UN resolution explicitly banning chlorine bombs and allowing for military measures to enforce that, it's because chlorine is a heavy gas that sinks to the ground. And it forces people hiding in underground shelters to make the choice to suffocate in the basement or to go above ground where they risk being hit by a second tap airstrike. And then the last type of weapon uh, used that, uh, I mean, there may be more, but the last one that I want to highlight are the incendiary weapons, uh, which burn people. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, people describe them as napalm-like and uh, they're very scary.
0: Yeah. Um, So if you know, um, have a lot of people in Eastern Ghouta left just the region or been able to leave Syria?
2: So
3: I mean,
0: recently,
2: I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, right. So like after the bombing campaign, uh, the the regime Bashar al-Assad actually like took a trip into Ghouta to, to declare victory, and uh-huh. some people were photographed like being made to hold pictures of Bashar al-Assad as they were being displaced, or to to say that they that he is their president in order to get aid. Um, I think I'm not sure if I'm assuming most people went to Idlib, uh-huh. um, and a lot of people who work on Syria are afraid that Idlib and then the southern area of Dara'a are going to be the last two places that are going to get the same treatment. So we saw this happen with Homs, we saw this happen with Haleb,
3: Yeah.
2: we just saw it happen with eastern Ghulta, and people are anticipating Idlib and, and southern Syria are going to uh, experience something yeah. similar.
0: As someone, you know, you being Syrian, and, and as someone who has been an activist for Syrians' visibility and rights, you know? Like I would like to get some insight from your point of view. Um what you wish the rest of the MENA, so just to explain to listeners, MENA, Middle East, North African, uh, what, what do you wish the rest of the MENA community would do differently, you know? Um, because Syria is surrounded by this entire region that you would think could at least kind of identify with the culture, the people, like, you know, and and I'm just curious from your your point of view, you know, what do you wish the MENA community would have done differently or would do differently now?
2: Well, uh, for civilians in the region, um, I wish that we would be more intersectional
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, with uh, our solidarity and our support for human rights and social justice. And, um, you know, I often think about like, how people across the region are facing oppression under many different contexts. Mm -hmm. In Israel, Palestine, it's an apartheid state, it's settler colonialism. Um, In Yemen, uh, they're suffering from a proxy war between Saudi and Iran, and Saudi also wanting to enforce its hegemony and its power over Yemeni politics. Mm -hmm. Um, They're also uh, experiencing a blockade and they also experience siege. Um, Iraq, uh, is still like healing from the illegal U.S. invasion, and so they were d- dealing with U.S. imperialism.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, Syrians are dealing with uh, not only like a dic- a dictator uh, intent on exterminating his uh, so, you know citizens. I don't want to say his people. Mm-hmm. A dictator bent on exterminating Syrians uh, citizens who uh, want basic rights, yeah. but also um, a regional proxy war and uh from with iran and hezbollah who support the syrian regime and then also there's the eastern european component with russia's support uh and then there's also the us war on terror component that's uh that's active in the country against isis um yeah. and i think you know each conflict and each situation in the region um has its own context and i i one problem I run into is people who understand one situation
3: yeah.
2: um, taking that and like putting it on another country. And I think uh, we definitely could be better about being intersectional.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and in terms of what I want from Arab leaders, I, I think Arab the Arab leadership um, is the most corrupt. Maybe not. Honestly, I take that back. They're as corrupt as any other government yeah um and i don't expect anything out of them and i hope that people can come together and um build build better societies together
0: yeah um yeah i mean even something as little as um social media or not little but (laughs) something like social media uh i've i've just seen a pattern of syria not really being talked about by, well, white people, but then even other Mina folks. And, um, and it's, it's something I'm still seeing. Um.
2: I, I think in part it's because, I mean, there are many reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons could be that maybe that person has experienced some type of conflict and they carry trauma yeah. with, so that could be one possibility. Um, I think another possibility is that people are scared to talk about something that they don't know about.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, but I would just want to remind an, anyone listening that, uh, you know, it's okay to reach out or to send someone a private message or just to say, like, you know, let me know how I can support, you know, mm-hmm. I'm watching, I'm trying to figure this out.
3: Yeah.
1: Because I'll admit, like, I know sort of the generalized circumstances in Syria and I know about sort of the Syrian situation as it relates to Lebanon and as it relates to the United States, but I'm, you know, woefully ignorant about a lot of the other stuff. And, you know, while I, while I did make this point, like on another episode, it's like, God damn, Middle Eastern politics and history are complicated. It's just, yeah. yeah I, I think that I, here too.
2: I think we need to like change our culture up a bit to where we allow people to say like, I, I don't know about this thing. Can you tell me more?
3: Yeah, because
2: yeah. we have this culture of, like, everyone being a history buff and everyone being a politics buff, and it's, like, kind of a toxic culture. And this exists in, like, progressive Arab spaces, too.
3: Right. Um,
2: and I think we need to chill out a little bit uh, mm-hmm. and just be, like, more humble and sincere.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and ask questions and not be afraid how simple the questions might sound.
2: It's a good... Oh, and that totally, yeah. just to be clear, that was not directed at Ellie. That was directed at the culture oh, yeah. that didn't, would, didn't, like, yeah. make Ellie feel that way. I yeah, still yeah.
1: feel personally attacked. <laughs>
2: Wait, are you serious? I'm so sorry. No, no,
3: no, no.
1: Ellie's
2: no. no,
0: no. <laughs> over here. Ellie's here smiling. Um, okay, so am I. Yeah, no, you're right about that culture of this, this kind of pressure everyone puts on themselves to know... A little, at least a little bit about everything, um, and it it can um, it can be toxic, like you said, and prevent anyone from truly um, admitting that they want help understanding something and that they want to know more in depth about something, and to reach out to those. Who are in a context where they have learned more um, on a particular subject? So that's a good point.
1: I think one of the thorny parts about Middle Eastern conflicts in history is, from the outside, if you ask some, if like if you ask somebody, well, what do you think of the conflict? They're going to try and you know try to give you the correct answer as opposed to ask questions. It's mm-hmm. it's a little dumb, especially true. given. How stupidly gray everything is. Like, um, like my main question at this point, like, what I want to ask is, how do I give to help Syria
2: that doesn't support the government of Syria?
0: Yeah.
2: Oh, that's a good question. So there's like um, some uh, Syrian-run organizations
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, that I can recommend. Uh, one of them, based in the United States, is uh, called Cutum Foundation. Um, it's run by Syrian Americans Can you and they, Oh, K A R A M Karam Karim foundation in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, they do a lot of work, uh, and like direct aid, but also their main mission is to promote education. Uh, so they have like different education programs and they also do take very principled stances on political issues, uh, which other NGOs won't touch. But the problem is, is that. The two are so deeply entwined. Uh, Like, there's a political reason why the humanitarian crisis is happening, Um, and like we had talked about earlier, there's a lot of uh, confusion. Just because I think there's just been so many conflicts in the region that people look at Syria and they're like, what does this fit into? Um, And I, the way that I like when I read Cuthon Foundation statements, for example, on like UN resolutions needing to be enforced or whatever. I see them as like trying to contribute to the clarity of the situation and giving people something to understand. You know, it's easy to understand like, Oh, this UN resolution needs to be enforced.
3: Yeah.
2: That's, that's something that I can call for. Awesome. Unfortunately, relying on the UN to do
1: anything productive in the Middle East sometimes feels like a hopeless cause.
2: Yes. Yeah, so can I explain to you how hopeless the UN is yes. in this
0: case? Uh, yes, please.
2: So I, a few weeks ago, was at a UN Security Council meeting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not usually at UN Security Council meetings. This was um, a special occasion. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Syrian opposition had been invited for something called an ARIA formula session of the UN Security Council. Mm -hmm. Um, An ARIA formula session is when the Security Council can hear from non-state actors and those non-state actors can give a testimony to what's happening in the country. So first we heard the UN Security Council have their own session. The session was about implementing uh, the Resolution 2401, which calls for a 30-day ceasefire across all of Syria, uh, lifting of the sieges and unimpeded humanitarian access across siege lines. And it said all the bombing had to stop, right? Cease fire. that's what ceasefire means. Yeah. But there was a clause that said you can continue bombing if you're bombing terrorists. And the US wow. God damn it America. So it's not it's actually it's it's not just the US's fault. The thing is is that the US is bombing in Syria to bomb ISIS, right? Mm-hmm. So it can't commit to a ceasefire. It needs that clause. But Russia and Syria are bombing civilians saying that they're terrorists. And so they can also continue bombing. Um, and so this this session on how to implement Resolution 2401 went nowhere uh, because everyone was saying they were bombing terrorists. And... Um, it was just a farce. So then then, then uh, a week or two later, uh, Jan Egeland, who's also with the UN, mm-hmm. uh, announced that the UN has given Syria and Russia coordinates of the hospitals in eastern Ghulta so that they would not bomb them. And everyone was like, are you guys out of your mind? Like, oh they God. are bombing hospitals. Why are you telling them where the hospitals exactly. are?
0: Exactly. Like, that's the opposite of what they should have been doing.
2: Right. And nobody could get around, like... Like the very fact that the that Russia and Syria are part of the United Nations
3: mm-hmm.
2: enables them to continue doing what they're doing, and then during during the Aria Formula session, um, the Syrian opposition talked about um, how the UN basically needs to get their stuff together and actually like do something because Syria and Russia have a military strategy to win this, and everyone else who's supposedly the friends of Syria is still only saying that they will do that. They want a political solution. Um, and another thing that I think is important to note is that the armed groups in Ghulta, I told you earlier that there was three armed, like, there was a few. Mm-hmm. One, only one was considered a terrorist group by the international community, and the other two were not. Um, and I only say this because the two that weren't considered ter- terrorist groups agreed to the conditions of 2401 Mm-hmm. They said, yes, we will give unimpeded humanitarian access. Like, you know, we'll comply with this. We're ready to comply. And uh, so, I mean, their testimony is logged in the United Nations. They Skyped in some people from besieged Hulta into the meeting oh, to wow. basically testify about what was happening. And that pushes back against Russia and Syria's lies that they're only bombing terrorists. But it still requires political will. Yeah. Um, also, at the same time, Turkey was bombing Kurds in Afrin, which is a city in northern Syria, yeah. um, and saying that they were also only bombing terrorists. I think you can get an idea of wh- why Syrians feel like this is just an international war that's being contained in their country.
0: Right. Yeah, so many players.
2: This
1: sounds familiar, almost it's it's like a neighbor has almost run into this exact same problem.
2: Exactly, exactly, and that's what actually the talk that I gave in DC yesterday was about. Was it's kind of like heartbreaking to think that we actually didn't learn the important lessons of uh, the U.S. the illegal U.S. invasion of Iraq. Um, that we are like, I, I mean, why can't we recognize? this war on terror, state terror language, and why are people on the left promoting this language? So, uh, you know, Syria and Russia say that they're bombing terrorists, and they'll say that the White Helmets, um, this uh, Syrian first responder group, that they are terrorists. And so you will see a lot of people on the left say, yes, those are terrorists, those are terrorists. And part of the reason why leftists will say that is because, because the White Helmets are positioned to deal with the aftermath of the bombs, uh, they have a lot of clout when they speak up against the bombs and they call for a no-fly zone, for example, which they have done. Oh. And so leftists see them as regime change agents funded by the CIA, which is not true. Uh, and they'll say those are terrorists. They're, like, evil. They're, like, U.S. It's, it's yeah. I mean, it's like it's messed up. It's really messed up.
0: Have you run into people who, are you know, consider themselves to be leftists progressive and stuff um say things that are clearly pro-assad because i feel like that's kind of rampant
2: yes yeah i've run uh, there's like a ton of white people who've built their careers off of palestine
3: Mm -hmm. who do this
2: sadly there's also a lot of palestinian activists in the diaspora who do this or who'll say that like we can't talk about syria because that will divide our community and we need to focus on our own issue even like honestly like quote-unquote, edgy or rad uh, brown people in media
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and high platforms, who have high platforms like AJ+, who will say, like, who I remember I used to get into arguments with online because in the very beginning they were saying that all free Syrian army groups were Al-Qaeda and uh, basically homogenizing, orientalizing Syrians,
3: yeah.
2: um, which is ironic because they use woke language on other issues. And, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like one of our, one of you know, our mutual friends pointed out that Syria is this, for some reason, just a blind spot for so many people of so many different mindsets, including people who, uh, you know, are supposedly woke or progressive. And-
1: I think even adopting level of woke or progressive can just outright blind you because you're like.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an it's, ego thing.
1: Yeah, um,
3: that's Ugh. yeah.
1: And then we sort of run it, and like in the nonprofit com- uh, community, we sometimes run into the issue of like, well, we can't talk about that because it's political, and we don't want to upset our donors or our or our constituents. And it's like, but you clearly are on the side of the oppressed here. Mm-hmm. Why not here?
0: Right, 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 by refusing to acknowledge something that is taking a stance
1: like they they know full well it like what's happening, but they're like, but no, we can't we can't publicly, you know, uh, get involved
2: in this. Otherwise, we risk our right. And and I think um, I'm glad you brought that up. That's I think that's a big problem in this space because basically it's become an industry. When uh, organizations and people care more about the brand um, than about doing what's right and being consistent with their values and principles. Of course, this also falls back in sort of the real world issue
1: of unless you've got money, you or money and or troops, you can't really do too much. you know I mean, like we personally would like to do more, but unfortunately all we got is this podcast, you know our podcast and our Facebook and Mm -hmm. like our reach is limited, you know,
2: I think that the podcast and the Facebook are great and I'm so excited to see you guys grow. Um, You know, I have also had moments where I thought the same things that you just said, Ellie, about uh, having a lot of money or having an army. But I also remember that the Syrian regime felt seriously threatened when Syrians, just started talking to each other and expressing what they wanted. Um, And, uh, you know, the Syrian revolution still exists today. It just looks different. So in the beginning, the revolution was asking for government reforms. Now it's a revolutionary demand to ask just not to be killed by the Assad regime for existing outside of their control. Um, And for me, like a way to honor and like continue and to be a part of uh, what are what the revolution is about um, is to have these important conversations, and uh, and I think something like the queer Arabs is very much needed in the space. Yeah,
0: that's a, that's a, an excellent point you brought up about how the term revolution is kind of morphing because you know when you hear the word revolution, you kind of picture people holding signs, you know, in a protest setting. But what you what. What you just pointed out is it's in this case especially it's so much more than that
1: although I think in the United States or at least the english speaking or English speaking world the word like revolution has been somewhat defanged because like there's a lot of inter- indoctrination here that says that pushes people especially on the left to say that all violence is bad, all arms of conflict is bad that you know you can only really adopt peaceful measures and you see that in a lot of groups that will like not that will not support any sort of armed resistance you know even if it is in self-defense
0: or unarmed resistance in that in mm-hmm. in this case you know people wanting that's, to live
2: that's a good point because in the first days of the syrian revolution a lot of english-speaking western activists were like oh they're cia-funded um, oh, wow. And it's like, no, they're not. My family is not getting paid. They would like to be paid for this, <laughs> yeah, but they're yeah. not. Like... That's what Abdul Aziz said when we were talking yesterday. He was like, "I would have loved it if someone gave me money in a sandwich <laughs> while I was protesting," oh, but no one did. Okay, can I ask you guys some questions? Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. So, do you see this podcast as a form of activism?
1: Uh, I'm going to go with yes, yes.
0: Yeah, I haven't thought of that until this moment, but I guess it it is. Yeah, I mean, we're, yeah, we're keeping a level of, you know, we're we're staying semi-anonymous for our safety and for our family's safety. And and for our
1: careers, because...
0: For our careers and stuff, but...
1: Does the company I work for want to be associated with that?
0: yeah, Yeah, but we do we are doing the level of activism we're able to with our circumstances. And it's kind of cool, kind of cool to realize like, yeah, I guess even a podcast is a form of activism. Um, We're speaking about some issues that are not talked about enough in a public setting and we are giving a platform to other voices. And And we're not afraid
1: to be a little bit stupid at times and get corrected on air by our guests
0: exactly that's that's the only way to learn and to um get information and uh, across and to converse in a real genuine fashion in fact
1: i think i'm gonna uh, suggestion for the title of this episode uh (laughs) ellie gets schooled on syria
0: (laughs) i i I like that it's like alliterative yeah i don't i would like to add I would like to rephrase it to "we get schooled on Syria" because I definitely learned well, a lot from this episode too.
1: Let's let's make it personal. Ali and Ellie get schooled on Syria.
0: Okay, <laughs> I don't want to act like oh well, this is all all information I was carrying around.
2: But, yeah. <laughs> Can I ask another question? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. So first of all, I totally think that this is a form of activism. Um, and mm-hmm. i'm so excited to see where the uh, the queer arabs go and to see the podcast grow um my second question is how have you how have you both thought about visibility uh-huh.
3: um
2: and what does this moment mark you know being having the queer arabs and like what do you imagine in the future for visibility for queer arabs
0: yeah um
3: go we're, it, we're so.
0: still we're we are still kind of Figuring that component out, I think that's the most challenging element of what we're doing. is Is the visibility and keeping that balance between like staying safe, but also making sure we, you know, get this podcast to people who need it or could learn from it or want access to it. Um, so, I mean, social media is is what we're falling on right now, what we're what we're leaning on right now, you know? Um, we are getting the word out as much as we can on social media, also by word of mouth, and our um, friends are sharing the podcast with others. And I think that has been effective so far, and I hope it still continues to be effective, but I feel like eventually we, we will want to take it to the next level, whatever that looks like. And mm-hmm. I'm still kind of figuring that out. I don't know. What do you, what do you think?
1: Uh, I always thought of this as activism. Like, basically, there are very few queer Arab anythings on net, at least in English. You know, I know there's, a, like I know of and am a part of, quite a few queer Arab whisper networks, um, you know, networks that are not public that you have to know somebody to get into. And I'm also aware of like here and there being like small queer arab things but it is such a niche space and such a small space for a population that is so internationally large but i think a lot of that is sometimes you just have to start talking so people know you exist and so people who do exist but don't know like there's anyone else like them out there that yeah we're out there yeah we talk about shit, and yeah we're pretty human we i mean yeah we're doing this podcast but we're not like some you know masterful exemplars of you know
0: yeah of humanity like or we're just you know even people. like
1: Arabness you know or queerness or any of that shit it's just we're here we're making our space and we're trying just to have the conversation at all you know because you know some people say well we have to steer the conversation or we or we shouldn't talk a, it's like no we just need to have a
2: goddamn conversation about anything related to this because it's I completely agree
3: yeah.
2: um, and especially for for the things that I focus on which is conflict um, it's so linked to gender um, and I have faced in the field where people who I consider my peers will tell me like it's not time to talk about LGBT stuff uh, but then I I think what they think is that, like, I want to walk into a village and quote Judith Butler at people and tell them that they're Mm -hmm. stupid for not, like, knowing Judith Butler. Right. Um, And I think a lot of cisgender and straight people uh, will use that against, like, people who bring up LGBT issues to say, like, oh, you want to, like, come in and say big words that people don't understand.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, But no, actually, uh, what it is is that I think that if you're in the field about talking about peace and justice and uh, accountability... Uh, it's your obligation your professional obligation to know about the human condition uh, because hmm. ultimately we're the people um, who are like writing a lot of these statements or like attending the meeting right so like Geneva talks whatever yeah. um, and you need to be able to imagine uh, even if it's like a hundred years into the future or something but you just need to be able to know what justice for everyone looks like yeah. Um and we also know that like toxic masculinity and patriarchy is directly tied to the state. Uh so when we talk about state violence, we have to understand it also like through that lens. Otherwise, then how can we imagine a better world?
0: That's so true. It's like um we can't just continue to ignore those who have been marginalized. Yeah, like you said, people people use this argument as uh um the argument of we're just not ready. The community is not ready. Right. Like, they'll say it's too,
2: mag- what will they say, Alia? They'll say it's too complicated. Those are two big words, right?
0: Right. It's and, like, okay, when is that magic moment where it won't be too complicated? And we, right which
2: actually something? ties it to Syria, right? Because people say it's too complicated. And I think anytime yeah. too complicated is always a cop out and people need to catch themselves when they use that phrase.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Because it, at the end of the day it's not at all complicated
2: even if it is complicated um you know we're capable of taking a moment and reading and learning and asking questions
0: true true yeah yeah that's true like for for um politically what's happening in syria yes some of those topics are complicated but people do have the, if they, if people want to, they can learn.
2: Right. And, and also like, I've been talking about this with my friends. Um, I know some Arab folks who work on like public issues related to like New York and DC, right.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, and they both interestingly had like something come up at work that was similar, which was, uh, like a human rights survey. Um, so that the city could understand how, um, like marginalized groups were, you know, doing with discrimination and stuff. And, uh, one, when, when I moved to New York, like one person who worked in the office was like, Buggy, you need to take the survey,
3: yeah.
2: which I thought was kind of interesting because I'd only lived in New York for a week, but <sighs> yeah. I wanted to support, I wanted yeah. to support her, like her and her new role. So I took the survey and the gender question was like badly worded so like oh, what gender okay. are you yeah. um and it said male female transgender oh, um yeah. and so i told her i was like hey yeah so i took the survey just want to let you know like the wording on this question you probably want to change it
0: yeah
2: um and she made up some excuses and then i met someone who's like the director of something related to an Arab center. I just want to be, like, as vague as possible. Right.
3: Um,
2: and she also, she used to work in, like, the human rights, um, the same position that that person had, and I brought it up to her. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, yeah, well, the problem is, like, not that many people know what cisgender means. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, it's too complicated, right? Like, and I was like...
0: It's literally, like, uh, it could be...
2: Right, so like, I'm, I'm thinking... Well, I'm thinking, like, you could put, like, a little gray question mark next to the word that people hover over, or just, like, a note on yeah. the survey question, or something that says, note, this is what cisgender means. Right. Um, and she still was making excuses, and so I was like, you know, I would love it if, like, your organization, if you guys want to do a panel on gender, uh, if you think the issue is that, like, people don't understand what cisgender means... Um, I'd love to attend. I'd love to tape it. I'd love to speak. If you like me to speak,er and she laughed and she said, "The community isn't ready." Oh my
0: god, the same phrase that we were told right, by an organization exactly. here.
2: And I think something that's like really heartbreaking is like people who occupy the space of like social justice, human rights,
3: mm-hmm.
2: oftentimes themselves like do oppressive and dismissive things, which I think is what Ellie opened up the episode with.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, it's like, it's just, sorry, it's just like, okay, so are you not considering us part of the community by saying that, you know? Exactly.
1: And I find the other issue is some people, sometimes people are just like, I do not care about the details, just fix it, you know? But the details matter. Yes. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: It's like, yeah, yeah, we could leave, yeah, we could just do this, you know, very simple very basic 1950s question on gender or we could have an actual question that gains us insight
2: you know useful. so so that was uh so i guess like to make the story better so that was the new york situation but my friend in dc who's cis and straight um was also like working on a similar survey and for as long as i've known her which is like a year and a half now uh, she's made it a point to tell me that she wants to know more about these topics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I let her know that, like, I am someone that she can talk to about this. Um, and so when she told me about the survey question, it was pretty good,
3: mm-hmm. but
2: it was missing one option. So it's, it had, like, gender nonconforming and everything. And I said, is there an option to choose cisgender? <laughs>
3: right.
0: And she was like,
2: oh, snap, I forgot that. Hold on, let me go at it.
0: Mm-hmm. That's awesome! Yeah, and so she added
2: it, um, yeah. and that's how it should be. I think you know, like intentions are so important, and just sincerely like wanting to know more and do better. Um, yes, may- and
0: letting go of the ego in that exactly. case. Exactly. Like, yeah. Um, so, if any listeners are, if you know, if any listeners could benefit from knowing this, um, if you didn't before, like it's it is very problematic to. Uh, differentiate between uh, just saying, you know, female, male, and then transgender, because you are, in essence, uh, automatically othering transgender folks, instead of acknowledging that, like, for example, transgender women are women.
1: Yeah, and the way those questions set up, it's more set up as a sex question, as opposed to gender and gender identity question, Mm -hmm. and yeah that's like splitting hairs but it's also pretty important when you get outside of the sort of male female divide like i remember like this being a thing at my doctor's office like you know they had you know gender male female other and i was just like okay
0: other other yeah wow Um, at a doctor's office too I mean, not that I'm
2: crazy. I I don't think it's splitting hairs. I think it's it can it is a reflection of uh, how confused cis people are um, on these terms and how little they know and how ignorant cis people are about the difference between physical anatomy, uh, gender identity, gender expression, and gender performance.
1: Oh, and you know, let's not confer- confuse them any further by saying things like mm. sexuality. Oh
3: no. <sighs>
1: You're throwing a you third just, variable into the mix.
0: What are you trying to do here? everything, Ali.
1: <laughs> but oh, you know, there's so like I. One thing I've also run into, sort of like on the feminist side of things, is, uh, it's been a little bit fashionable, uh, these days to say, well, people are just not willing to do the work and look shit up. I'm like, yeah, but it's also, and it's also not people's job to go out and educate people you know you have the at least in some communities the image of the offended white male saying well why don't you teach me and sort of the reaction reaction to that is well it's not my job to teach you and yeah and that's also true but i also think there needs to be people who put themselves out there and say yeah uh yeah ask me that
2: shit bro i'll tell you all about it I, I I think it's, like, every person's personal decision on what they can handle. Yeah. Um, like, I know with my friend, I told her to specifically... Actually, I tell a lot of my straight cis friends this, um, that when it comes to gender questions, I want you to ask me, because I don't want you to be stupid around <laughs> a trans
3: person. <laughs> well put.
2: Hey, darling.
3: Yes.
1: You can ask me trans shit anytime you want. I'm not going to be... I'm not gonna get mad. I swear. Yay. But, yeah. Um,
0: That I mean, that's very that is generous of you. Like,
2: well, it's also because like I'm cis and I have the energy to do it. Um, I don't face what trans people face their entire lives in many cases. Mm -hmm. Um, And. I, yeah, I, I appreciate it also when people do the same for me and things that, like, weigh heavily on me. Um, so, Alia, like, I really appreciate it when, uh, like, you make an effort to talk about Syria online. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that not everyone uses Facebook in the same way. Um, and I, like, I tried to keep that in mind because some people, like, maybe they just don't want to get into Facebook back and forth or whatever, but... Mm-hmm. Um, but I like you just because Arab people talk about politics. You would just expect like a little more, <laughs> oh, yeah. like maybe yeah. just like a little something, um, and yeah. so that always actually like depresses me. Like even though I don't, I'll never explicitly like write about it. Um, yeah. It always just makes me feel kind of weird and sad. Uh, and so like when you like consistently show up on that, it, like it, you know, I I notice.
0: Yeah, I I do, I mean, I do my best and I I try to remind myself that even, like, the simplest thing, um, sharing uh, the Guta Facebook page, like, if if that information will reach one other person, like, it's worth it. Um, It's not insignificant. Um, And I think uh, people could use, you know, people who use Their social media in that context, like sharing information, getting, I guess, political sometimes or talking about the world. Like, I think people should realize the potential of their their online space and uh, what you know what they can do, even if it seems like it's nothing, you know, or really insignificant.
1: And here's the cool thing about social media and Facebook and even podcasting is. Yeah, you can do it consistently, you know, which actually really helps if you're doing a podcast or trying to grow an audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can also step away. You know, you don't have to be, you know, doing the social justice warrior thing 24-7. You can say, you know what, taking a break, bros. Taking taking a step back, getting my energy mm-hmm. so I can continue to do this. But-
0: yeah, like, I guess no matter how sporadic someone's, uh, yeah, someone is about this kind of thing like i think it's still important to remind for all of us to remind ourselves like we we have an ability to do something you know even if it seems small um and like we shouldn't underestimate underestimate what we can do from our positions like whatever position any of us is in
1: yeah even if you're not the sort of you know, say like a political asshole like me who constantly goes on and on about their favorite topic. uh, You know, when people who don't really talk about politics or issues talk about something, especially in the personal context to your friends, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that can be meaningful. It's like, oh shit, you know.
3: Uh, You know, I,
2: I think that's even more meaningful and powerful because people expect it from someone like me, but once it reaches someone who doesn't usually talk about it, and they share with their friends.
1: Yeah, like, um, yeah. Like my primary communities are basically activists, um, prof- uh, professionals of certain fields, and gamers. You know, this come up from time to time. Yes, I am a gamer. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you know. So whenever I talk politics, you know, the activists kind of expect it. The professionals know about it, and the gamers, t- you know listen but they may not be interested but every so often i get somebody who talks back who i never expected to do it and when they talk about it you know that reaches their friends and Mm -hmm. you know may shock somebody who's like usually like oh that's just you know that's chinatown don't even worry about it sort of responses to like oh damn you know she just talked about she never talks politics what happened here you know what's the deal and that can Mm -hmm. you know pierce the bubble because Fundamentally, all politics are personal. True. Amen.
0: Yeah. Oh, you two are both. You two are so awesome. Um. Well, I guess we're hitting the time to wrap this up. That went
2: quickly.
1: Um, uh. How are you doing on time? You you cool or did we miss anything?
2: Um. I think that was everything. I mean, I'm like the last person in the office, and so. I'm getting kind of sleepy just by okay, virtue of that I was traveling so. today.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally get it. We'll wrap this up. Um, before before you go. Uh, one other oh. thing. Uh,
1: send us a link of all – send a copy of all the links, charities, whatever. We'll link it in the text of the episode. That way anyone who says uh, – Who wants to know more can you know hit it up and whatnot yeah
0: okay Uh, i appreciate
2: that thank you
0: yeah um anything you want us to post we will do that on our website and also before we let you go can you tell people where can people find books not bombs like are you on facebook or anything
2: oh yeah so books not bombs we have a facebook twitter and instagram we're about to launch a new website Um, One thing I wanted to mention about Books Not Bombs is our approach to local activism.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, So we're a transnational campaign. Technically, we're not bound just to work in the United States, and we've uh, had some activity outside of the United States. But, um, you know, our mission is to serve displaced Syrian students. But we also know that, like, some people, like, in different areas, um, Mm -hmm. they might work with different refugee populations, or just like come from a a background, maybe working out with other groups. So we don't walk into a community and say the scholarship has to look like this, and it can only be for Syrians. Um, Mm -hmm. So the scholarships we create are all different, and some of them are open to all refugees, which we're very proud of. But the thing that unites them all is that a displaced Syrian student could apply. Could be considered. Um,
0: yeah. Um, so how are? what are ways people can support Books Not Bombs?
2: Well, if you work in higher education or you study in higher education um, and you have time to lead a campaign, I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Um, you can get in touch with us uh, through our Facebook page.
1: Awesome. You know, and money is also good, I suppose.
2: Oh, so we don't take donations. Really? Yeah, we're one of the few, like, non-donating... Okay
3: things oh, that
2: you can do either. Okay. Okay, genuine oh. shock and surprise. <laughs> <laughs> the beauty of campaigning yeah. is that you're just trying to get other people to change their behavior.
0: Yeah. All right, so everyone go to Books Not Bombs on Facebook or the other, you know, the other handles and like like it and share it.
1: We yeah. encourage that. Uh, at the uh, and if you want to hear if you want to get direct links to any of this stuff, all the sites and organizations will be linked in the text of this episode. So you'll have direct links. You don't have to bother with Google or bullshit or worry about like donating to the wrong. We'll make
0: it super easy. We'll put it on their website. All right. So um, I'm Ellie.
1: This is Alia. And And Shia. Shia. Thank you
2: so much, guys. Thank
0: you for being here and for staying at work late. (laughs) You're (laughs) awesome. You are awesome. Really appreciate it. And this was a great
2: conversation. Thank you so much. It really
0: was. Go get some sleep.